It is good to be with you this morning. Hope you're having a good week. Um, I uh, started another crazy adventure. Um, I bought an inflatable raft and I'm turning it into a little fishing boat, putting a trolling motor on the back. I got a wood floor inside of it with uh, some indoor outdoor carpet. My wife thinks I am nuts and I probably am, but hey, let's have fun, right? That's what I, maybe that's the, the, the motto of my life. It was funny when I was working on this in my driveway, uh, the neighbor across the street who actually attends here, not here today, but uh, he came pulling in with his dad, probably like an $80,000 bass boat. <laughs> and I was like, hey, you know, I was thinking about going over there. You want to trade? You want to swap out? I think mine will go maybe luck, you know, if I'm lucky, five miles per hour, we're going to be cruising. Today, I believe, is going to be the maiden voyage. So pray for us. We will definitely have some life jackets. And I think we've convinced Mary to join us, so it'll be fun. So today, we're starting a new sermon series. We're talking about uh, why the gospel has to be our starting point if we are going to live out our theme for this year as a church, which is on purpose, pressing in to what matters most. Jesus summed up what uh, matters most. He said, love God with all you got. That's, that's my translation. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to live a life on purpose, focusing on what matters most. And so if we're going to do that well, the gospel is our starting point. And so over the next uh, couple of months here, two months, I think, we're going to be looking at why the gospel is our starting point. So today, we're going to be camped out in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Um, I'm also going to be referencing Romans chapter 1 a lot. And so if you, if it helps you to see the scripture and you've got a Bible or you've got a Bible app, you may want to open up Romans 1. We'll have 1 Corinthians up on here on the screen here. So I'm just giving you a heads up. Here's the big idea of the sermon. I have already said it, but it's worth repeating. The gospel is the starting point for living a life of purpose. So let me read this passage to you. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to the Corinthians and he says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren and at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some had fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Let's start by answering this question. 
so that we can grab a hold of our big idea. What is the gospel? So let's, let's start there. Um, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, the gospel was a Greek word that means good announcement. And the way that that word was used was to report a victory of a king. So in that day, uh, a king would, wear, would win a battle in some far off land and then there would be heralds that would come and tell uh, the king's people, hey, the king was victorious, he exercised his rule and authority in this area, it's good news. Also, a herald would then go and announce to the people that were conquered, hey, <laughs> you've been conquered, you're now under king so-and-so's authority. So that's what the gospel was in Paul's day. So what is Paul doing by using this word to refer to Jesus Christ? Ah, this is what he's doing. He is saying that King Jesus has won a great victory over that which opposes him. That's what Paul is saying when he uses the word gospel. Now to understand why Je what Jesus' victory is all about and why it's so great, you've got to understand how great Jesus' opponent was. Paul tells us the opponent. It is sin. Sin is the great opponent that Jesus defeated. So, Paul puts it succinctly like this. Christ died for our sins... For our sins was buried and rose again the third day, all in accordance with the scriptures, and then was seen by hundreds of people, even 500 people at once. That's, again, kind of my way of paraphrasing what Paul said. And so Paul is making it clear that Jesus won a great victory over sin. So why is this good news? So if the gospel is that announcement, why is it good news? Well, again... We need to know what sin is. So what is sin? What is sin? The simplest way to put it is that sin is breaking the law of God. What is God's law? Jesus summed it up. Love God with all you got and love your neighbor as yourself. So when we sin, we're breaking those two commandments that sum up God's law. So that's what sin is. Now, we have all, every person in this room, what we have done is we failed to love God supremely. We all have, right? Every one of us, we talk about, the, about this a lot here at the church, every one of us have chased after something above God for our satisfaction, significance, and security in life. For some people, they put their career as their supreme love at the center of their heart. Or some people, it's their success. That is what they love, and that's what they serve. That's what is the center of their heart. For some people, it's their children. For some people, it's their marriage. For some people, it is you know, gaining power and influence, right? Everybody wants to be an influencer now. It's like you ask any kid, that's what they want to be. That's what they're setting their heart on. That's what they're loving supremely, right? Now, what the Bible shows us is that when we start loving something in place of God, when we dethrone God and we say, this is where I am going to find my satisfaction and significance and security, we start to unravel. 
If you were to read Romans 1, it tells you how it all begins to unravel. So Romans 1.21 states that our thinking becomes futile and our hearts become darkened when we disconnect ourselves from our maker. Right seems wrong, wrong seems right. We have all these conflicting desires in us, right? We feel guilt, we feel shame, we feel pride. Like everything internally starts to break down. And then Romans 1, 29-32 goes on to tell us that once our vertical relationship with God is severed, guess what happens to our horizontal relationships? They start to unravel too. This is the world we live in, is it not? Broken people do what? Broken things. This is the state of where we're at right now. And so in place of loving other people as a person loves themselves, what do they do? They start coveting what other, people's have, what other people have, and they start hating them for having it, right? They start gossiping about others. They start boasting about, about themselves over others. Everything's a competition. I've got to win, right? They start lying and cheating. They don't forgive. They don't extend mercy. You know, we, we start demanding our way and become infuriated if we don't get what we want like a two-year-old throwing a temper tantrum, right? We treat people as objects, and so we have sex with them without any long-term commitment. We seek to be served instead of seeking to be a servant. Thomas Manton has said this. First, we practice sin, then defend it, then boast, in it, then boast of it. Sin is first our burden, then our custom, then our delight, then our excellency. See, the downward spiral of sin takes us to a place where we eventually, where sin becomes our excellency. You see that in Romans 1. We actually start celebrating it. We actually start celebrating the sin in other people. It's such a downward spiral. And it happens quite suddenly. Um, Romans 1 repeatedly tells us that God's wrath against sinners on that downward spiral, his justice against them right now is being revealed in that he lets people walk down that path if they so choose. Um, three times in Romans 1, Paul says that God gave them up or gave them over to their, their sinful desires and their sinful lifestyle. And he lets them bear the consequences of the decision they've made. That's God's wrath being revealed. His justice being revealed right now. If you were to continue reading in 1 Corinthians 15, you would come to verse 23. And, and Paul, he starts talking about how, guess what? Jesus is returning. And when he returns, um, justice will be completely served at that time. Good God, he's a holy God. Um, he hates the evil that has made a mess of the world he created very good. And thank God, he is going to return and he is going to deal with it. And, and if you keep reading 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he's going to even deal with death. He's going to defeat death. Death will die. It's quite remarkable. Now, for those who are in Christ through repentance and faith, they're going to be resurrected to live in God's new world that is free from evil. 
What a glorious day that will be. Um, what happens to those who aren't in Christ through repentance and faith? What happens to those that have persisted on their downward descent of, of a lifestyle of sin? Well, the Bible and passages like Matthew 13 and Revelation 20 tells us that those who want to be separated from God will get what they want for all of eternity. But they're going to bear the full weight of the consequences of that decision. And so what they're going to experience is an eternity separated from God, which will be um, so difficult. It will be so extremely isolating, dark, disintegrating. Because remember, God is good and He is the life source. You cut yourself off from Him, and what happens is it is just this disintegration of the person. That's what's going to happen. God will forever quarantine persistent rebels away from Him in His new world in a place that the Bible calls hell. And they will experience the full isolation, emptiness, and disintegration of their choice to be separated from Him. Um, what is, I mean, after all, what is God to do with a person that persists in rebellion? I mean, what can he do? What are the options? All right, so let's say he, um, let's say one option is, you know, I'm just going to force them to love me, and so nobody will grow to hell. Well, love can't be forced. That doesn't work. God, God, God's not, he, 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 love is, love can't be forced. It's a choice or it's not love. It's not co coerced, right? So what's another choice? All right, so God, here's another choice. So God, what he does is he just, I'll just, you know what? I'll overlook everybody's sin, even though they're persistently through a whole lifetime, they've rebelled against me, it's a whatever, Come on into my new world. How's that going to work? The new world will be in no time like this world. A little leaven spoils the whole batch. That's not an option. What's another option? He could annihilate us all and just like kill us forever. That's not good news. Like, and he, he's not going to do that. He's chosen not to do that. And so... What God does is he allows people to go down the path that they have chosen. Some people have decided they want to be separate from God, and so he'll let people have it. And they'll get what they deserve from that decision, the consequences of that decision, which is an eternal life of emptiness and isolation and disintegration. That is why C.S. Lewis said in the book, the great, his book, The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is open. Look, every indication that we have in Scripture tells us that the person in hell becomes so far gone 
so far gone in their pride, their self-absorption, their narcissism, that although they are miserable, they're unrepentant. Um, you may know the story that Jesus told in Luke 16. It's the parable of the rich man and the beggar Lazarus. And in the story, both the rich man and Lazarus die. And Lazarus, the beggar, gets to go be with Abraham. Um, and the, the rich man goes to hell. It's interesting what happens in the story. Let me just read this quote from Tim Keller to you. He, the rich man, urges Abraham to send a messenger to go and warn his still-loving brothers about the reality of hell. Commentators have pointed out that this is not a gesture of compassion, but rather an effort at blame-shifting. He's saying that he did not have a chance, he did not have adequate information to avoid hell, that is clearly his point, because Abraham says forcefully that people in this life have been well informed through the scriptures. It is intriguing to find exactly what we would expect. Uh, it's, it's intriguing to find exactly what we would expect, even knowing he is in hell and knowing God has sent him there. He is deeply in denial, angry at God, unable to admit that it was a just decision, wishing he could be less miserable, but in no way willing to repent or seek the presence of God. It's interesting. So, so what Keller is saying is like, look, the rich man, he is in hell, but he is blaming everybody else because he's there. Like, it wasn't my fault. You know, I didn't have enough information in, in the scriptures. No, he had enough information. He has the scriptures, right? And this rich man is still trying to get the beggar Lazarus to serve him there. He's so self-absorbed, so, so narcissistic, so in denial um, that he can't take responsibility for his actions. And he remains unrepentant. You know, I think a lot of people have this image of hell, and it's inaccurate. I think they imagine God, you know, like holding people over a fiery, blazing furnace, and they're screaming up to him, God, you know, I am so sorry for what I've done and how I've rebelled against you. Please forgive me. And God is saying, you know, two bad suckers burn. That's, that is not what we see in the scriptures. People in hell are not going to be, you know, saying, they won't be repenting. They'll be ticked off at God because they'll believe you did me wrong and you weren't fair and you didn't give me opportunities and that's why I'm here. They'll just grow to hate and despise him all the more. They're going to be sorry that they're miserable. A person, a person in hell is going to be sorry they're miserable. But they're not going to be sorry for what they've done. Um, one more quote from C.S. Lewis which is taken from his book, Mere Christianity. Christianity asserts that we are going to go on forever. Now, there are a great many things that wouldn't be worth bothering about if I was only going to live 80 years or so. But I had better bother about if I'm going to go on living forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. 
Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Do you hear what Lewis is saying? He's saying that that downward spiral of sin, it just keeps going and going. And if it's allowed to go on for an eternity, you have no idea if you're on that path what sort of monster you'll become. Think about it. A, a grumbling mood, as C.S. Lewis gives an example of, it can get really bad in this lifetime. Allow, imagine uh, you know, somebody being allowed to persist in that for 100 years, 200 years, 50,000 years. We're all going to exist for eternity. Complete, people will become complete monsters. They'll make Hitler look good. That's, that's the downward spiral. Now, do you see the great horridness of sin? Do you see how great of an opponent it is to the human race? Do you see that sin is humanity's greatest enemy? It's not COVID. It's not cancer. It's not dictators. It's not terrorists. It's not drug addicts. It's not whatever, whatever. That's not the greatest enemy. It is sin. Because sin is the greatest enemy that is the root of every other evil we see in the world. Sin is tremendously great. But do you know who is greater? God. Yeah. God's greater. Um, the last thing that God wants is for anybody to persist on that downward spiral, spiral that leads them to hell. Look at what the scripture says. Ezekiel 33, 11. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure, no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. First Timothy, Timothy 2, 3 through 4 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so what God does, because he is so great in mercy and grace, he comes to intercept us on that downward spiral. And this is why the gospel is such earth-shattering good news. Jesus intervenes to save us from our greatest enemy. Do we deserve God's intervention? No. It's all sheer grace. What we deserve is to endure the consequences of our decision. That's what we deserve. But God is gracious, right? Uh, we've all been like, I don't care that you created me and sustained me. I don't care that you made me to be in a loving relationship with you. I don't care that you created me to be higher than any other created thing and to rule over your creation on your behalf as your partner within your boundaries. I don't care that I owe everything I am to you and everything I have to you. I'm going to do it my way. And yet, God, in his grace, intercepts us 
Um, how did he do it? How did God do it? He did it in Christ, through Christ. Check this out. God mercifully provides a way for us to be brought back into fellowship with him as our life source that doesn't compromise his justice. This is remarkable. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment for your sin and my sin. And packed into three hours, he experienced an eternity of hell in our place. Extreme isolation, ex extreme um, disintegration, extreme emptiness. He experienced, experienced it all. All packed into three hours. Remarkable. Why? Why was he separated from his father because so God's justice could be poured out on him for our sin so that we didn't have to meet God's justice he meant it for us what's more is that Jesus he lived the perfect life we were supposed to live he perfectly loved the father with everything and he perfectly loved his neighbor as himself why so that when we come to him in faith we can have his perfect performance record so that we can be reconciled to God. We can be reconciled to the life source and we can be put back together, created anew. Let me say this. Jesus pays for our sins so that God's justice is satisfied and we don't have to pay and offers his perfect performance record so that when we receive it in faith, we can be reconciled to God and treated by God as if we perfectly love God and the people he has made. And so what happens is, once we're reconnected to him, we get the royal treatment. We get the royal treatment. Let me just quickly mention some of the things that happen to us in this new life that he gives us. A new heart that loves God and desires to please him and that truly desires to love others. Apart from God, you think you're loving people? You're really trying to love people to serve yourself, to build your own identity apart from God. And so you may love in form and action, but the motivation almost always is it's not real love. You get a new ability to speak to and listen to God and discern his will. A new friend, the Holy Spirit, that empowers us to live the Christian life. A new family, the church, that provides us with the support and encouragement we need to follow Christ. A new promise that everything we experience in this life, even the sufferings, God is going to work out and leverage for our ultimate long-term good. New provision. God will make sure all of our needs are supplied. A new peace with all of our sin, past, present, and future forgiven. We don't have to fear Jesus' return. We don't have to fear judgment. A new joy as you begin to reach your full potential as a person. You finally get to be who God always intended for you to be. A new hope. We are guaranteed a future spot in God's future new world where, where sin will be quarantined forever from it. The gospel is such good news. It is what God has done for us to reconcile us to the Father so that we can be made new. The gospel is not good advice. Good advice is all about what you have to do in order to be right with God. Do this, obey this, do these rules, and then God will accept you. No, the gospel is Jesus did it all for you. You just need to receive it as a gift. 
That wouldn't be good news if you had to do X, Y, and Z and this over here and I got to pray this many times and I got to give this amount. That's not good news. That sounds like a whole bunch of work. Right? Now, and I'll finish up. Um, why is the gospel the starting point if we're going to live a life on purpose? Loving God and loving God. Why do we have to start with the gospel? Here's why. You don't just need a little touch-up job. You need to be born again. That's why Jesus said like, to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. If you're going to lo- really live for God, if you're going to really love other people, you are, you are so sinful and flawed. You don't need just a touch-up job. You need a whole new heart, a whole new life. That old life needs to be killed and crucified. You need to be raised anew. It's the only way it's going to happen. Here's another reason why we need the gospel, and it has to be our starting point. It provides us with the motivation to love other people. If you were to read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Paul says, the reason why I am laboring so hard to love God and to love other people that he was facing death daily is because of God's grace to him. He was so messed up in his sin that he was actually going after God's people so that they would be killed and God intercepted his downward spiral. And now he's just like, I gotta love God and I gotta love other people and I'm gonna work hard with the grace that God supplies me. And also the reason we need that the gospel is a starting point to love other people is because we need humility to love other people. How can I look down my nose at another person if I was a train wreck on the downward spiral that would eventually lead me to hell? And Jesus, out of sheer grace, he intercepted that downward descent. How can I look down my nose at somebody else that doesn't think like me, look like me, smell like me? gospel is a certain point. I look forward to the weeks to come. We're going to unpack even more so why the gospel has to be our starting point. Um, And so come back. All right. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that you are here in our midst. Thank you that where our sin ran exceedingly deep, your grace ran deeper still. Thank you that um, you couldn't imagine, couldn't stand life without us. And so you came down, you pursued us. You intercepted our downward descent so that you could raise us up to life with you. Lord, we look forward to the day when you return and you make all things new. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that hasn't given their life to you, that they would do it Today, they would do it now, that they would do it immediately so that it doesn't become more difficult for them to make that decision as time goes on and their heart becomes more hard and darkened. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.